got your Bible with you, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Just while uh, you're, you're, you're getting there, just one, uh, just one brief announcement, a little bit of feedback after last week. You know that we uh, had a little bit of a kids' talk with kids throwing stones up the front here. And uh, the feedback that I got from one of the parents was that the child said that they now know they can throw stones in heaven. So uh, if, if kids' talks go according to plan, that's what we get. Um, but where's Angela? Where's Angela? There, we, there she is. That was actually little Elliot that decided we can throw stones in heaven. And what a very big congratulations to Garrod and Angela, uh, expecting number two. So well done. Congratulations. Right, Deuteronomy chapter 30. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where He has scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love Him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. You will again obey the Lord and follow all His commands I am giving you today. Then the Lord your God will make you the most prosperous in all your work in all the work of your hands and in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock and the crops of your land. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous, just as He delighted in your ancestors. If you obey the Lord your God and keep His commands and decrees that are written in this book of the law and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. No, the words, no, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him and to keep His commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away 
and you are not obedient. And if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land. You are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a big passage. It's a difficult passage. You're going to need to focus, concentrate. I need the Lord's help. Let's pray and let's see what the Lord would have for us this morning. Father, I, I just bring your word before you that you would take it by your spirit and, and, and penetrate it, push it deep into the hearts of your people this morning that we now again may be drawn to worship you for all that you are and for all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you help me to preach your word to your people and would you be pleased to draw any here that do not know you into a living relationship with your Son. I would ask it for Christ's sake and His glory. Amen. All right, let me, uh, give you a, let me give you a title, Blessings and Blessings. Does that sound right from the passage that you've just read? What, what would you have said? Blessings and? And curses. Well, it's blessings and blessings. But you're going to have to wait until the end to find out. If I say to you the word tension, what do you start thinking about? You might start thinking about the tension that you've got in your neck or your back because of some sort of emotional, physical pain. Caroline clearly has that this morning. Oh, sorry, Shannon. All right. When you start thinking about tension, you might start thinking about some tension that are in your relationships. Tension. There's tension in different parts of the world, isn't there? There is China and Taiwan. There's China and Australia. Always seems to be about China. It's Russia and Ukraine. It's Israel and Palestine. There's a tension in this elastic band, isn't there? That's probably not where your mind went. Here is a definition of tension that I want you to consider this morning. It is a relationship between ideas or qualities with conflicting demands or implications. A relationship between ideas or qualities with conflicting demands or implications. Now, the God of the Bible has revealed himself to us, and when he does that, he creates an incredible tension in both his quality and his demands. Let me show you what I mean. If you've got your Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 30, it comes at the very end of Moses' life. Moses will not enter into the promised land, and before he dies, he will pass the mantle of leadership on to Joshua. 
And, and, and the words from Deuteronomy 28 to 30 are famously known as the blessings and curses passage. And I want you to have a look at Deuteronomy 28, verse 1 and 2. And I want you to start feeling the tension of this passage. If you fully obey the Lord your God and follow carefully all His commands I give you today, the Lord will set you high above the nations on the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And you'll notice that the blessings are there listed. Take a look at them. Just remind yourself of them in verses 3 to 8. But if you were listening carefully and you went down to verse 15 that Pat read for us, here is the tension. But if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all His commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and they will overtake you. And there you'll see from verses 16 to 19 the curses that were read. The blessings of God are truly beautiful The curses of God are truly ferocious. It begins to stir a real tension, doesn't it? Blessings for obedience. Curses for disobedience. Do you feel the tension? And this tension of blessing and curses only intensifies when we see that there is a tension of character in God himself. God is both holy and he is merciful. Let me show you what I mean. You might remember back in Exodus chapter 34 that Moses got to a point where he says to God, God, show me your glory. Show me who you are. Reveal to me your character. Reveal to me your heart. Show me who you are. And you'll remember that God says, yes, I will show you. He puts Moses in the cleft of a rock, and it says this, and God, the Lord, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. There is the blessing But now feel the tension, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Do you you feel the tension? Do you feel the tension between the mercy of God and the holiness of God? God is endlessly gracious, endlessly slow to anger. He is endlessly loving. He is endlessly forgiving. Yet God is endlessly just and he must punish sin. As God reveals himself to Moses, he says to him, I am mercifully forgiving, but I am, I am wholly just and I must punish every sin. Do you feel the tension? This obviously raises the question, why must God punish every sin? Why must God punish every sin? You see, the God of Islam says, right, if you do more good deeds than bad deeds, well, then your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds, and you won't be punished. 
Have you ever wondered why the real God cannot do that? Because the God of Islam is not good. God must punish every sin because he is good. If a judge saw that somebody committed a crime and said, oh, well, just let that go. They've done so many other good things. We would say that that judge is not good. But on the other hand, why would God want to forgive us? Why would he want to bless us? Why would he want to have some sort of relationship with us? And the answer is because he is so good. God is so comprehensively good, so holy, so just, yet so forgiving, yet so merciful. And the problem is that people just cannot compute a God that is so comprehensively good. Because usually what happens is because they can't handle it, they tend to loosen the tension on one side or the other. So for example, if you say that God is holy and just holding that tension, but not his love, then actually what you do is you've got a God that says, you better obey me in order to get into heaven. But if you've got a God that is so loving and merciful, but you slacken the tension on the other side, what you've got is a God who says, I really want you to obey, but I'll just accept you any old way anyway. When you loosen the tension between the holiness of God and the mercy of God, what you end up with is a God that you've made up in your own image. You got the tension? God is so good. He is so comprehensively good in His holiness and His love. It is blessing for obedience. It is curses for disobedience. Let me give you my first point as we heighten the tension. You cannot be good. You cannot be good. Now look at this in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 1, and you need to read the verse carefully. Listen to what Moses says. When all these blessings and curses I've set before you come on you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you, among the nations. Read it carefully. Do you see the shock? Can you see it? Moses says that God is going to disperse them among the nations. In other words, do you see what Moses is saying? Moses is saying to them that you're going to fail. Israelites, you're not going to be able to obey God. And God is actually going to bring about the curses on you that were mentioned in Deuteronomy 28. You are going to fail. I wonder how many of you like motivational speakers. You like those ones? You know those uh, guys or ladies that get up and they, they tell you that you can be whatever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. You put your mind to it. I mean, you can even conquer the world according to Hyundai. Imagine that. Moses doesn't match the motivational speakers, does he? Because he says to the Israelites in terms of their obedience, you cannot do it. You will fail. You cannot put your mind to it. 
You're going to fail miserably. Israel, you are going to face the curses of God because he is going to exile you to the nations. And right here, what we've got is Israel representing the whole of the human race. Because you and I cannot obey God according to his holiness. And so you and I are facing the curses of God. We're facing the justice of God's holiness where he must punish our disobedience. Every human being knows what is right or wrong. Every human being knows what's right or wrong. They either know it according to the word of God or they know it according to their inbuilt conscience. Israel had the word of God in black and white. Well, they had it in stone. And they could not love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and could not love their neighbor as themselves. No matter how hard they tried, no matter what they put their mind to, and the curses of Deuteronomy 28 were coming upon them. And it's this inability, it's this non-ability of the human being to do what they ought to do that completely baffles secular professors and psychologists. A secular uh, professor in philosophy in San Francisco, a guy by the name of Jacob Needleman, he wrote a book, and the title is this. Why can't we be good? And here's what he says in his book. He says, people know what they ought to live, but just can't do it. And this is the biggest mystery and problem of the human race. He goes on to say, why are we writing all these books telling people how they ought to live? People know how they, what they ought to do, but they just won't and don't do it. It's impossible. End quote. And Jacob Needleman just doesn't know why. Rebecca Pippett, in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, she tells the story of the time that she did a counseling ordered class at Harvard University. And this particular professor was giving a case study on a man who was very angry with his mother. The man didn't realize how angry he was with his mother and didn't really understand how it was really distorting his life. The professor said that through the counseling, the man came to see that much of his life was dominated by his anger and that seemed to help. The professor was about to move on to another case study when Rebecca Pippert put up her hand and she said, Professor, professor, that's great, but how do you help the person? The professor turned and said, well, what do you mean? Rebecca said to him, Professor, well, how do you help the man forgive his mother? And the professor replied, well, there's nothing I can do. Hopefully now he will understand his anger and hopefully not be driven by it. You see, the professor had to admit, as psychology has to admit, it can't help you to do what you ought to do. And if it can, even if it can show you what you ought to do, you can't do it. You won't do it. Let me give you a great quote by Timothy Keller. He says this, We don't need more books telling people how to live. People need the power to do what they don't have the power to do. You hear that? People need the power to do what they don't have the power to do. 
So Moses starts right at Deuteronomy 30. He says that you're going to fail. You cannot do it. You cannot obey. And you and I need to be constantly reminding people what they already know, but they won't admit. You know what you ought to do, but you cannot do it and you won't do it. Now, please understand this morning, that is not all there is to gospel preaching. Thank God for that. But unless, they, unless you are affirming to people that they cannot be good, that they cannot keep God's laws, that they are invoking His justice because of their disobedience, if you're not doing that, not willing to do that, then you're not preaching the gospel at all. I wonder this morning whether you are somebody that needs to be reminded again that you are unable to do what you ought to do. You cannot love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and you cannot love your neighbor as yourself. You can't do it. You're not good. And if you're not good, what do you need? You need God to circumcise your heart. Now, if you had to look at verses 1 to 5, Moses says, right, you're going to fail. God, the, God's going to disperse you, go into the nations. You're going to, the curses are going to come upon you. And then he says this, when you come back, and I want to pick it up in verse 6, when you've come back, he says this, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Moses talks to the Israelites about something God's going to do way beyond their time, something that he's going to do in the hearts of people beyond their existence. It's something that the Bible unpacks in prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel called the New Covenant. Think about it this way. If you cannot do what God requires you to do, and you're going to incur the curses through His holiness, then who is the only one that can fix the problem? God. You see, what we need, what the Israelites need, what we need, what you need, what I need, is for God to circumcise our hearts. Now, you might sit here this morning and say, well, what is, what is the heart? Your heart is the control center of your being. Your heart is where you decide what you're going to trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. The heart is the place where you decide what to love. The heart is the place where you decide what your treasure will be. The heart is the place where you decide what your supreme good is, what your hope is. It's where you choose your salvation. It's what you cherish, what you adore. The heart is the place where you decide what you will give your life for. The heart is the indicator of what you love most. Let me quote Timothy Keller again. Whatever the heart, want, whatever the heart most wants... That is the thing the mind finds most reasonable. 
The emotions find most desirable, and the will finds most doable. In other words, what the heart is set on affects your mind, your emotions, and your will. So what does it mean to have a circumcised heart? Peter Craigie, in his commentary on Deuteronomy, has a very beautiful, simple phrase, and he says that the circumcision of the heart, very simply, is God's surgery on your heart. God's surgery. That's what you need. Look at it again. This is so profound. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart. The, the Lord your God will do surgery on your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love Him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. You see it? Because you can't love God as you ought. You've got to have God do surgery on your heart so that you can love Him. Now, have you ever heard this sort of expression? Love is not love if it is, unless it's freely given, right? Love is not love unless it's freely given. But you can't love God. You can't love Him. So what has God got to do? He's got to cut your heart. He's got to do surgery on your heart so that you can love Him. In the Old Testament, circumcision in the male body was a physical picture of what God had to do in the human heart. And listen, only when your heart has been circumcised, only when God has done surgery on your heart, will there be an inner motivation of love to obey. If we don't have this heart surgery, we can obey God somewhat externally. We can obey God somewhat out of duty. We can obey God somewhat religiously. But listen to this. The human heart unchanged cannot obey out of love for the supreme value and worth and glory of God. Did you hear that? The unchanged human heart cannot obey out of love for the supreme value and worth and glory of God. Perhaps I can give you a little marriage metaphor for a moment. You know that a number of people get married for different reasons. Some people get married so the partner can get a visa into Australia. There are such things as arranged marriages. There are business alliance marriages. There are political alliance marriages, as we saw in Daniel. There are coercive marriages. None of these marriages are out of love. But when you fall in love with your spouse, and your spouse asks you to make a change in your life, you gladly and willingly make that change out of love for your spouse and the immense value that you place on that marriage. Here's another way to put this. A circumcised heart or the surgery of God's heart is where what you ought to do and what you want to do is the same. You hear that? What you ought and what you want is the same. 
the great John Newton, in one of his hymns, he put it like this. He said, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. You see it? Pleasure and duty, ought and want, they come together in the circumcised heart. So, you cannot be good. Therefore, you will invoke the curses of God in His holiness. You therefore need a circumcised heart or surgery of the heart, which means, number three, therefore, you need the circumcision of Christ. In other words, how does this surgery of the heart take place? A good question for you to ask this morning is this. Why did God pick physical circumcision on the male body in the Old Testament to picture the surgery that's needed in the human heart? Now, I ain't going to go into too much detail due to um, obvious and sensitive reasons and small ears and those sort of things. But I'll put it to you this way. Before the advent of modern medicine, circumcision in the Old Testament was gory, bloody, gross, intimate, personal cut to the most sensitive part of the male body. It was a way of God showing the Israelites and us the deeply personal, sensitive, gory, bloody, intimate nature of sin that violates the holiness of God. And quite frankly, it could not have been physically pictured any other way. Now, let me show you something incredible. This will be a very familiar verse to you. We did it in our study in Colossians. Remember, we were asking the how. You need the circumcision of Christ. The how. In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole, your whole self ruled by flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Now from the Greek, you could actually pull it right down. And this is actually what it says in the Greek. In Christ, sort of a summary of the whole verse, you have been circumcised in the circumcision of Christ. Do you see the difference? What Paul is saying is that we receive a circumcised heart because Christ was circumcised for us. Have a look at that cross again. It was there at the cross that Christ experienced the curses of Deuteronomy 28 to 30. That was the ultimate penalty for disobeying God. And the ultimate penalty for disobeying God is to be, to be cut off from Him. To be cut off from God is to be cut off from life. To be cut off from life is to be cut off from anything that is good. Christ was experiencing the cosmic experience that our sin deserved. Let me put it another way to you. I want you to think back to the Garden of Eden. You remember that Adam and Eve were 
forced out or cut off, if you like, from where? From the tree of life. And you remember that after they were cut off from the tree of life, you remember that was an angel of the Lord that stood in the way of getting back to the tree of life. There was a flaming sword. Remember that? And the only way that they could get back to the tree of life was to do what? Was to go under the sword, to be cut, to be circumcised. That's what Christ went through. Because Jesus Christ experienced that circumcision for you and me. Because he was circumcised at the cross. By faith, we are given new hearts where our pleasure and our duty, our ought and our want, become the same thing. Now, if you're sitting here this morning, and you are saying to yourself that I see that Christ was cut off, circumcised at the cross. I see that. I know that. That was what I deserve. That should have happened to me. That was for my sin. That was for my punishment. If that is for me and Christ died in my place, then you are experiencing the circumcision of the heart. You can't be good, so you need God to circumcise your heart. Therefore, you need the circumcision of Christ. And fourthly and finally, you will need the gospel. So we looked at Deuteronomy 30, 1 to 6, and Moses is looking down the corridors of history, and effectively, he is saying, you're going to fail, the curses will come upon you, you'll go into exile, God will bring you back, but God is going to cut off the Messiah, will circumcise him so that you can have a circumcised heart that will love me. Now, if you've got your Bible, but it will come up on the screen, come down to Deuteronomy 30 verse 11. And here's what Moses says, sort of a summary. He says, now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in the heavens so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. Now listen carefully and stay with me. If you look back at verse 11, now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. Can you see that Moses is not saying it's not too difficult for you to obey? He can't be saying that, can he? Because that would be absolutely undoing absolutely everything that he's just been saying. I'm going to give you what he's saying, but I'm going to have to crystallize it for the sake of time. Here's what Moses is saying. First of all, he's saying to the Israelites, they don't have an excuse. It's not too difficult for you. In other words, you don't have an excuse. 
Israelites, you don't have to go over the sea to find out what God's will is. You don't need to go into the heavens to find out. You don't need to go into down there. To, you don't need to go to the east, the west, the north, and the south. You don't need to go anywhere. The word of God, the laws of God is right there in front of you. There it is. You've got no excuse. It's in black and white. It's in the tables. It's in the stone. You've got the holiness of God right there in front of you, right? You've got no excuse. And my brothers and sisters, same for you. You don't have an excuse, do you? You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to go to Timbuktu to find out God's will. Here it is. But now stay with me. Paul, the apostle, actually quotes this passage in Romans chapter 10. And Paul helps us to understand what Moses is saying to the Israelites. So stay with me. Here's what Paul says in Romans 10. But the righteousness that is by faith says... Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That's to bring Christ down. Or who will ascend into the deep. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. That if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Stay with me here. Here's what Moses is saying to Israel as Paul is saying to us. Blessing for obedience and curses for disobedience will only crush you in the face of the holy standards of God. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. It doesn't just create a tension, but it creates a despair because we cannot keep the laws of God. So the only word, the only word that is not going to crush you and cause you to despair is the gospel word. Why? Because Christ has done the impossible for you. What Moses is saying to the Israelites, don't Try and earn your salvation. If you do that, it's like you want to pull Christ down out of heaven. If you want to earn your salvation, it's like trying to draw Christ out of the dead. Christ has come from heaven. He's gone into hell effectively in order, in order to save you. In other words, what Moses is saying is this, and through Paul. If you try and keep the law, it's like saying what Jesus did didn't matter. In the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians, if you try to keep the law or earn your salvation by law keeping, then Christ died for nothing. What's the only word that's not too difficult for you? Obey will crush you. Obey is going to crush you. The only word that is not too difficult, the only word that won't crush you, is the gospel word of Jesus. Because Christ came to live the law perfectly for you. He loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He loved his neighbor 
as himself. And then he was cut off. He was circumcised on that cross. He was exiled at the cross so that those who trust in him, God would do surgery on their hearts so that we can begin to love God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. Let me close with this. God is so comprehensively good. He is comprehensively just, comprehensively love. And that tension is resolved, listen, by pouring out his curses on his obedient son. Did you get that? That's how the tension's resolved. He pours out the curses on his obedient son. Remember I said to you, blessing and blessing, did it sound right? Does it sound right now? No, not yet. Blessing for obedience? Yes. Blessings for whose obedience? Christ. Curses for disobedience? No. Blessing because Christ was cursed for us. For those in Christ, it's blessing and blessing. Not blessing and cursing. Blessing and blessing. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So let me ask you as I close. Are you blessed and blessed? Have the blessings of the obedient son been given to you because he was cursed in your place? Are you blessed and blessed? Do you have a circumcised heart where your ought and your want or your pleasure and your duty Is that you? Perhaps, perhaps you sit here this morning and you know that you've got an uncircumcised heart. God has not done surgery on your heart. Because you don't love God. And you don't love your neighbor. Would you cry out to him because of Christ to bless you and bless you and give you a new heart, a heart that has had surgery, that has been cut? I think there's only one song that we can sing. Music team, come and lead us home.